Welcome to the second podcast in the Pain Coach series. These podcasts address the FDA's opioid analgesic REMS education blueprint. Listen as Dr. Catherine Galuzzi, professor and chair of the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine's Department of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine, and Dr. Keila Herr, Kelting Professor of Nursing and Associate Dean of Faculty at the University of Iowa College of Nursing. Consider steps in establishing pain treatment plans for our older adult patients. So Keila, what are the key components of an effective pain treatment plan? So let me just highlight the elements and then I want to identify a few topics within that that are particularly relevant to older adults. So first component is to establish the treatment goals. Second, to understand who the treatment team is and their roles and responsibilities, and that includes the patient and the caregiver. Third, consider both non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic interventions. Consider when opioids might be part of the pharmacologic intervention approach. Implementing the plan and then monitoring and evaluating the treatment outcomes and goals. When we're thinking about older adults, the focus needs to be on getting information from them directly and using that to establish unique goals for the patient. Now, for some older adults, it's not going to be possible to get that information directly, and it's going to be the family caregiver who has insights that can contribute, and they need to be part of that treatment planning team. It's also important in developing the treatment plan that we understand any misbeliefs about pain and its treatment that might interfere with our ability to have a successful treatment approach. Older adults have a lot of misconceptions about pain, as do their family members. It's also important to communicate that pain doesn't have to be endured. Although we may not be able to eliminate it, it should be possible to manage it to a level that allows them to do what is important to them. So establishing their goals for treatment. What is it that they are not able to do because of pain that is interfering with their quality of life? Use that as a target for goal setting. So for example, if spending time with their grandchildren and have them sitting on their lap is important, but they are just not able to because of the pain, then let's make that a goal you know, once or twice a week to be able to have grandchildren visit and interact with them. As I mentioned, it might be necessary to involve the caregiver, particularly if they're going to be overseeing the treatment plan, which is often the case, and monitoring for outcomes. Also, in considering the treatment plan and what approaches we're going to be using, it's important to determine what the patient has already tried and what has or hasn't worked. What concerns do they have about their treatment, particularly related to analgesics? Um, If opioids are going to be part of the treatment plan, it's important to explore any concerns about risks and to educate. Obviously, that's a very multidisciplinary approach, or we might call it a multimodal approach. Um, And while we're on the topic of modalities, what are some of the non-pharmacologic strategies that we can use for helping to manage pain? 
So there's a variety of non-drug interventions that are appropriate for use with older adults. I do have to mention that the evidence related to non-pharmacologic intervention is limited in older adults, particularly those with cognitive impairment. And we don't know which intervention will work for which patient, thus presenting the options positively and with hope that they will provide benefit is a key communication strategy and then determining what the older adult is willing to try. And do they believe it has the potential to help? Another consideration is access. You know, is there insurance or funding for the type of activity that might be recommended? But back to what are the different approaches that can be used? Probably the best studied, especially with chronic pain, is exercise. Even simple walking can help to address chronic pain problems. Maintaining strength and flexibility is important for overall functional improvement and mood, um, but it also has an analgesic effect. Some other physical interventions, such as heat and cold, massage, physical therapy, are all appropriate for use in older adults. Psychological interventions can be used as well, such as cognitive behavioral approaches and techniques that teach coping strategies. Um, relaxation techniques, mindfulness meditation, use of distraction or music, all have been used in older adults effectively. Sometimes we don't think about functional approaches, but the use of assistive devices, braces, orthotics um, can be useful. Interventional techniques like joint injections, stimulators um, have a place in the comprehensive treatment plan. And then there's alternative therapies such as acupuncture and acupressure, cranial stimulation, aromatherapy. Again, the level of evidence is variable um, in older adults, but exploring some of the more tested interventions would certainly be recommended as part of the treatment plan. I, I completely agree with you. And I just want to say that one of my mottos with respect to exercise is that, you know, motion is lotion. <laughs> if somebody is able to move, they are going to, you know, affect not just better function, but it will impact their mood and ultimately have a pain relieving effect. So we didn't mention movement modalities like Tai Chi or yoga, and I think they're really important. And I am an osteopathic physician, and we believe very strongly in being able to affect pain management through therapeutic touch. So thank you for those options. So Keila, let's think a little bit about some of the non-opioid pharmacologic modalities that we have. I'm thinking about medications like acetaminophen or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for pain? So we always do start with non-opioids because we think that they're least less risky than opioids. However, a number of them have issues and concerns. Acetaminophen, of course, is still probably first line, except it's not going to be appropriate in older adults that have issues with liver function. Whereas NSAIDs are often offered up, has the next line of analgesics. They come with significant risks, particularly to older adults that have a history of cardiovascular disease or GI ulcers, for example. Even in older adults that don't have comorbidities, NSAIDs have been problematic for long-term use. So they're really only recommended for a very short-term course. 
The challenge with chronic pain management in older adults is that their pain problem isn't going away in a week. It's ongoing and we have to find a way to manage it. And that's why opioids are part of the treatment options that need to be considered. So weighing the risks of opioids against the functional impairments and interference with quality of life that the older adult is experiencing is going to be really important. Do you think that there may be a role for acetaminophen or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs as what we would call adjuvant with opioids? In other words, using them in lower doses, maybe only as needed. I think that some of our patients are very reluctant to take opioids around the clock. Maybe if they're able to use acetaminophen a couple of times a day, staying well below the hepatotoxic dose of, you know, three grams, or non-steroidals in selected patients who don't have the problem of, you know, renal disease or a history of cardiovascular events. Uh, how do you feel about that? You know, that's been recommended for a long time is the synergy effect of having non-opioids and opioids as a part of the treatment plan. I believe there have been some studies recently that are documenting that this is an appropriate choice. So I do think it's a definitely something to take into consideration. Mm -hmm. So earlier we talked about neuropathic pain and the treatments you might use, which are probably either anticonvulsant or antidepressant has primary treatments for that type of pain problem. They also have adverse effects and so have to be monitored carefully. But there are a variety of different medications that can be considered to be used separately or in combination with or without opioids um, as a part of the treatment plan. Back to the question of when might we consider opioids. To me, when other appropriate interventions have been tried and pain remains moderate to severe with significant impact on function and quality of life, that is when I would want to explore opioids as a part of the treatment plan. I totally agree. You know, the other thing that the FDA wants us to remember is if we're going to be considering opioids, they would like the pain to be rated as either moderate or severe and that we begin it as a therapeutic trial. In other words, we're going to see if it works, monitor how the patient is doing, look at the patient's function and pain levels, and make ongoing decisions, ideally in a shared decision-making way with the patient and caregivers. So when opioids are part of the plan, what are some additional elements that we're talking about in terms of education and screening? Yep. So even though we know that older adults are at less risk for opioid misuse and abuse, there still are concerns. And so it is really important that a risk-benefit analysis is conducted and that patients and providers are aware of the risks that need to be monitored for. There are recommendations for screening for risk or opioid use disorder in all people, and it can be done with a simple screen. This is going to continue to be more important as the current cohort of people entering the 65-plus age group is aging because they were raised in an era where drug use was more prevalent um, and recreational than in our 
current older adults. So I think it is going to become more important that we screen and be careful in our risk assessment and set up um, procedures that keep things safe. But to me, probably one of the most important things in talking with the older adult about the risks for opioid misuse is misuse by others, which is a very common issue in homes where older adults are using opioids. So educating them on the risks for potential for stealing or for use by family, neighbors, caregivers, and the cautions that need to be in place, such as locking up opioids, what to do with leftover opioids, to make sure that others are not put at risk. I think I shared with you, Keila, with my hospice team, when we have patients with opioids in the home, the nurses will sometimes use code when they're concerned. They may say something to the effect of, you know, doc, there are a lot of people in the home, <laughs> meaning no one was visiting grandma before, but now with opioids in the home, there are a lot of new people hanging around. And what they're telling us is it's time to intervene and get a lockbox into the home, educate the seniors, and assign one of the caregivers to control the medication so that it doesn't fall into the hands of children or teenagers uh, because we know how devastating that can be. Can you share with us how the opioids work in pain relief? So opioids bind to the opioid receptors in the brain, spinal cord, and other areas of the body. And by doing that, it reduces the ability of the brain to send messages out about the painful experience. Opioids are used to treat moderate to severe pain that may not respond well to other pain medications, and they do this by interfering with the way that the brain perceives the pain problem. Mm -hmm. I see. And when we talk a little bit later about opioid use disorder, we'll get a little bit more in depth as to the parts of the brain that are involved and why these can become problematic. So what types of opioids are available? Can you just quickly give us an idea of the types of formulations that are available, maybe including a little bit about the abuse deterrent formulations? You bet. So, you know, there are opioids that are full and partial agonists, means that they act in different ways. Full agonist opioids activate the mu, kappa, and sigma opioid receptors in the brain and result in the full effect of the opioid. And examples of that are oxycodone, methadone, hydrocodone, morphine. There are antagonists that block those opioids from attaching to the receptors, such as naltrexone and naloxone. Mm -hmm. And then partial agonists, such as buprenorphine or butorphanol or tramadol, that are mixed. And so they have varying level of activity on the opioid receptor that contributes to a ceiling effect. They often have less euphoria to them. So those factors can impact the type of drug that is most likely to be abused. When we think about different routes of administration, it's important to think about this, particularly in the cognitively impaired or those at the end of life who may not be able to take oral products. Sublingual and transdermal formulations can be really important options in those populations. We also differentiate between immediate release versus um, extended release or long-acting opioids. 
and they play a different role as far as dependency and when you can use them because you certainly never want to use an extended release or long-acting product in those that don't have an established history of opioid use or tolerance to the adverse effects of, in particular, respiratory depression and sedation. Mm-hmm. So there are abuse deterrent formulations that have the antagonist agents embedded in them, such as naloxone. Those products reduce risk for misuse and abuse because if the product is altered, the antagonist is released and that counters or prevents um, the euphoria that one might get. These products, although important to combat misuse and abuse, are often not covered by third-party payers, particularly Medicare and Medicaid. So they may not be an option um, for many of our older adults. And they may still have the potential for abuse. I'm not thinking so much of the patient him or herself, but rather someone who may be getting them through diversion. Let's turn now toward some of the definitions about risks like abuse and that terrible word addiction. I know we're moving away from using the terminology addiction and now talking about substance use disorder, but let's talk a little bit about concepts of abuse, misuse, tolerance, and so forth. Yes. So this is an area that can be kind of complex because there is some overlap between some terms. It's often confusing, but I think it's helpful to clarify that misuse is when someone is using their opioid in a way that is not the way it was prescribed. So maybe taking too much medication, taking someone else's medication, Um, not using it for its intended purpose. And I think a classic example is that patients will take their opioid to help them sleep, which is a bad idea because Mm -hmm. we know that opioids can interfere with the sleep architecture. That's a great example, Kate. Um, Abuse is when someone is intentionally using the opioid for non-medical purpose. So using it without a prescription or using it for the experience of euphoria, not for pain relief. Right. Addiction, as you noted, we're trying to move away from the use of that term, but it does refer to this pattern of continued use despite potential for harm. There's impaired control over the use of the drug, compulsive use, and they are often showing issues within their life, harm to relationships, inability to meet commitments, et cetera, um, that are evident, but yet don't stop the use. Craving is also a part Mm -hmm. of that as well. We're going to talk more about that in our final podcast, but it's good to review some of this. What about the idea of tolerance versus dependence? Because one of the things that I see with families is when the patient says, this medicine isn't working anymore, I need a higher dose, I need to take an extra dose now, Um, many times the family will leap to the conclusion that the individual is becoming addicted to the medication when in fact what they're manifesting is tolerance. The dose of medication that they were getting relief from before is no longer giving them the same analgesia they were experiencing. Well, you've covered that pretty well, Kate. Dependence is the other one. Dependence does not equal 
addiction, does it? No, absolutely not. And it's really important to understand. I like to compare it to somebody who's on steroids. Um, You don't just automatically stop cold turkey because their body has become adapted to a certain level of that medication. And so they have to gradually taper off. It's the same with opioid dependence. The body becomes physiologically um, adapted to receiving that stimulation to their neurons and the exposure from the opioid. And so the body won't function normally if that drug is no longer available. So if it's withdrawn, what you then have is withdrawal syndrome. Prolonged use of opioids makes the receptors dependent upon the drug to function. And if you stop it, cold turkey, you're going to have a physical response with physical sickness, you know, diaphoresis, nausea, vomiting, chills, which is why it's so important that if the plan is to try reducing the opioid dose or stopping opioids, it needs to be done very thoughtfully and cautiously over time. Absolutely. Do you think there are special risks that we should be considering for older patients? And are there specific opioids that we should completely avoid in the older population? So I think it's important to be aware um, of the high risk for comorbidities in older people that may make them more at risk for opioid-induced respiratory depression. You know, so if there's a history of cardiac disease, pulmonary disease, um, obstructive sleep apnea, those have all been associated with increased risk for respiratory depression, which is, um, you know, the major concern that leads to deaths. We also see a high risk of respiratory uh, depression in older adults that are prescribed opioids and also benzodiazepines um, because they have an additive respiratory depressant effect. And even though there are strong recommendations to not use benzos in older people, they still are prevalent, um, particularly in long-term care facilities. I'm sure you have some other examples, Kate, of concerns. Well, that's the big concern. Individuals who are being co-prescribed a benzodiazepine or any type of sedative hypnotic, or individuals who may be abusing alcohol or other medications that are going to interfere and make them even more sedated, confused, What about risks for long-term versus short-term use? Are there long-term medical effects that clinicians need to be aware of? Yep. So with short-term use with opioid-naive older adults, we're mostly concerned with the sedative respiratory depressant effects um, because they haven't built tolerance to the medication yet. That means starting low and going slow with the dosing and monitoring for adverse effects and gradually titrating upward till pain relief is achieved and goals are met. With chronic use, we have limited evidence. So It's interesting when you look at the guidelines um, and they say, you know, there's no evidence of effectiveness with long-term chronic use with any of the medications that we use in older adult populations. So just because there's lack of evidence doesn't mean that they don't work and can't be used effectively. It's just that the evidence hasn't accumulated yet, but it is ongoing and we're learning more and more all the time. One of the problems that I've seen with chronic use is the development of hyperalgesia. 
which is where something that's not normally painful becomes extremely painful and the pain that's experienced is worse that one would expect given the condition that's underlying it. Some other long-term concerns are related to um, immune function, mm-hmm. can be impaired, sleep disordered breathing, the risk for fractures and falls. Falls in particular is within the first two weeks of starting opioids in an older adult. Chronic long-term constipation can actually be a rate-limiting effect in the use of opioids for many older adults and can cause discomfort and suffering as well. So all of these are areas and problems that need to be monitored and considered as part of the risk-benefit analysis if opioids are going to be part of the treatment plan. Agree. And, And the other one that I was thinking about is endocrinologic disorders. We know that there is downregulation of the uh, sex hormones, testosterone, but we can, we've even seen some cases of individuals developing frank diabetes mellitus with long-term use of, of opioids. So I agree with you that a trial may be in order for someone in whom clearly the benefit outweighs the risks. And as long as we're continuing to monitor for these long-term risks and problems, I think we may be able to get good analgesia for our patients. But I think we should share some specific examples of when we can use opioids for acute pain in older people. And I think post-op pain is a good example. Let's listen to this patient's story. Morris is a 78-year-old Army veteran who underwent a double knee replacement. He declined opioid medications for management of his post-operative pain. I just didn't want to take to opioids. The doctor said they would be short-term, that they'd help me heal, but I didn't think I needed them. I'm Army, and I'm tough. I was in Vietnam for crying out loud. And to tell the truth, I have a friend whose son got addicted to opioids. It tore his family apart. I don't think I would have gotten addicted, but at the time... I surely didn't want to risk it. The thing is, now I wonder if the doc might have been right. I had a lot of pain. I mean, serious pain. Rehab was really hard. I just couldn't do it sometimes. It's taken me nearly a year to get back to normal. (laughs) Whatever normal is if you're 78. Yeah, looking back, I might have done things differently. Let's return to doctors Her and Galuzzi for additional thoughts. Clearly, being able to get analgesia and judicious use of opioid pain management would enable him to participate in rehabilitation and have potentially faster healing. You know, Kate, if prescribers and patients are too fearful about the risks of opioids, that they're not used when they're needed, the outcomes are going to be negative and worse in function and quality of life. So I think it's really important to consider and understand beliefs and concerns that might interfere with the treatment plan um, so that we can avoid the risks of acute pain turning into chronic pain and ineffective treatment contributing to negative sequelae. One of the things that I wanted to talk about related to acute pain management is that with the opioid crisis, there have been cautions applied not only to chronic pain, but also acute pain. I would agree that providers have been too liberal with the use of opioids, even in short-term pain. And so 
prescribing for an appropriate time and appropriate dose is really important, and then monitoring effect over time. Some newer studies that are actually looking at anticipated duration of pain for some of the acute injuries, we would expect to see healing and lessening of pain in three to five days, seven days. Um, And so opioids would need to be tapered off and probably stopped a lot sooner than maybe they have been in earlier days. Agree. I think we can turn now to thinking about opioids used for chronic pain management and in thinking about what works well for these patients. Should we be prescribing short-acting or long-acting opioids as first line? Should opioids be taken as needed or be scheduled around the clock? And finally, are there situations where a long-acting or extended-release formulation might make sense for patients with chronic pain? So if we're initiating opioids as a part of the chronic pain management plan, I think we still are going to start with short-acting opioids because we need to start low. We need to be able to evaluate effect and monitor for adverse effects from those opioids. So we certainly start with short-acting. Whether or not we're giving it around the clock versus PRN in a cognitively intact older person that is able to self-report, we might use PRNs because they can let us know when it might be anticipated. If the pain is continuous, then there's really no benefit to a PRN dosing and around the clock dosing to get a good blood level is gonna be more effective. The population for which this is really relevant is the cognitively impaired who are not able to report their pain. They can't ask us for their pain medication. We have to be proactive and around the clock dosing is likely to be best, especially if the pain is expected to be continuous and not intermittent. We also have to be aware, though, in chronic pain management that older adults have extensive polypharmacy. And in that situation, once an effective dose of opioid is established, and if around-the-clock dosing is appropriate, then transitioning to longer-acting agents make a lot of sense. It requires less dosing and provides more consistent effect and can make adherence you know, to the treatment plan more likely. In the case of neuropathic pain, when anticonvulsants or antidepressants are not effective or can't be used because of side effects, opioids may play a role. Although not all patients with neuropathic pain respond to opioid therapy, so a trial is often needed to see what's going to work and what's not appropriate. Thank you so much for that. These scenarios are very helpful. And are there guidelines that we can rely upon to help with our decisions about opioid selection and pain management, specifically for older people? And do you think we should be thinking about reaching out to pain or palliative care specialists for this population? So there are guidelines that have been published and some new ones are coming out as we speak. Back in 2009, the American Geriatric Society published pharmacologic guidelines for managing persistent pain in older adults. 
those principles are still quite valid and they have a nice section about opioid risk and things to do to screen and monitor for safety. Um, but 2009 is a while ago, and so looking at more current guidelines is appropriate. The British Geriatric Society, British Pain Society, are in the process of updating their guidelines for pain management in older adults, and I, I'm anticipating those to be released any day. And then the American College of Rheumatology and the Arthritis Foundation just released an updated guideline on management of osteoarthritis pains. That guideline in particular provides some solid recommendations about various non-drug and drug approaches that can be useful and very relevant for older adults. Relative to when to reach out to a pain or palliative care specialist, any provider that's not comfortable managing the pain of an older adult that's complex, such as failed back syndrome, post-surgical fusion is a good example, could refer to pain or palliative care specialists. The problem is access, and not every locale has a specialist available. So and there I, may be very long wait times for exactly. seeing pain specialists, which is really, I think, Gila, why it's important that this education is disseminated to primary care providers. We are the front lines, and we are going to have to be able to manage these patients if we're not able to get them to a specialist for care. That's a really excellent point, Kate. And not only are there not going to be enough pain specialists, there's not going to be enough geriatricians to meet the needs of our older adult society. So it really is essential that our educational programs shore up current best practices to assess and manage pain in the older adult population. Kayla, you and I are singing in the same choir. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for this very interesting conversation that we've had. And again, I want to thank our audience and encourage you to continue with our next podcast in the Pain Coach series, which will be Managing Patients on Opioid Analgesics. This podcast is part of a series. Listen to the next one, Managing Patients on Opioid Analgesics.